Mark 9 again today. Made it down to verse 14, and we're going to get through verse 29 this morning. As you turn there, let's uh, review quickly uh, where we've been in the book of Mark. Uh, If you remember, Mark opens his gospel by making the claim that Jesus is the Christ, which simply means Messiah, and that he's also the Son of God. After stating this, which is Mark's thesis, he invites us to answer this question, who is Jesus? And it's this question that's underneath all of our text. Every, every time we come together and come from a passage in the book of Mark, that's the question that we need to ask, is who is Jesus? What does this show us about the person and work of Jesus? Because that's the question Mark wants us to have the answer to. He writes to the end of, persuading us that Jesus is, in fact, as he has stated, the Messiah, the Son of God. Throughout the first eight chapters of Mark, which happened to be the first half of the book, uh, we learned that Jesus is the Son of God. They're written to, or they're devoted to showing us who Jesus is. And so as we turn to these second eight chapters, or the second half of the book, uh, they're aimed towards revealing Jesus' purpose or what he came to do. So we've, we've learned who he is, partly, and now we're learning what he came to do. The transfiguration, which we studied last week, served to display God's glory to Peter, James, and John in order that they might be strengthened by the knowledge that God is with them. Armed with this comfort, Peter, James, and John, and Jesus come down from the mountain of glory and into the valley of the shadow of death. From this point forward in Mark's gospel, Jesus has his course set for the cross. And that brings us to our text this morning. We're going to work through it in three parts. The disciples' failure, a father's plea, and a son's resurrection. The disciples' failure, a father's plea, and a son's resurrection. Going to learn that Jesus helps the helpless. And that we can overcome evil by staying dependent on and in the presence of Jesus. We're also going to see that true faith expresses itself through prayer and that prayerlessness is powerlessness bordering on faithlessness. I've attempted to to summarize all these ideas together, the main ideas of our text in our one big thing this morning, which is this. Jesus helps the helpless. So ask for help. Pray. Let us pray together now. Father, we admit our weaknesses. We don't have the ability to to focus, to listen, to learn, to grow, to to preach, or to worship you with the singular devotion that you deserve. Help us. Help our unbelief. Defeat our prideful hearts and the structures of evil that seek to smother us from sin and distract us from your grace. Give us grace upon grace, Lord. Bathe us in your presence. Let us rejoice in your unmitigated mercy, in your unbridled affection, in your unfailing love. Father, we thank you for your word. Give us ears to hear it this morning. Shape us by it into a more faithful display of your glory. Amen. All right, let's look at verse 14. 
And when they, that's Jesus, Peter, James, and John, came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, that's Jesus, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out. They were not able. And Jesus answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Jesus, Peter, James, and John have uh, quickly come down from their mountaintop experience. Jesus' glasses are back on. His shirt is buttoned back up. His shirt is ironed and his glory is once more concealed. And the brokenness of the world has once more become visible in the absence of his glory. Have you ever had an experience like this? The circumstances of your life are really, really good. Things are pretty awesome. I think Peter, James, and John up on the mountain experience Jesus' glory. They're coming down, maybe, maybe like you have come down the stairs in the morning before, whistling a, a tune and singing along. Oh, what a beautiful morning. Oh, what a beautiful day. I've got a wonderful feeling. Everything's going my way. Then you trip on the rug and stub your toe and discover that you're out of coffee. Quickly reminded that the world is broken. I imagine that coming down to the bottom of the mountain to find the other nine disciples in an argument with scribes and surrounded by a crowd was even more deflating than stubbing your toe or discovering that you've run out of coffee. (laughs) In my sanctified imagination, the scene is a bit chaotic. The other nine disciples have been unable to heal a young boy and are now being taunted by the scribes while the crowd gathered around them chants, fight, 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 as if they were in grade school. And you can almost hear what the scribes would likely be saying. Wow, the name of Jesus must really have power. You can't even cast out a tiny little demon. His name's Powerless. You're silly for following him. It's into this brokenness that Jesus comes from the mountain. And immediately the crowd surrounds him. He says, what's all this commotion about? And there's a voice that comes from the crowd. Teacher, I brought my son so that you could heal him. He's possessed by an evil spirit. It won't let him walk or talk. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him violently to the ground. He foams at the mouth. He grinds his teeth. He becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they couldn't do it. And then Jesus' voice responds with a toe-stubbing frustration in it. He says, you faithless people, how long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So let's ask, what exactly is the problem here? 
I think it's, it's readily apparent that a boy is demon-possessed and that he often has seizures. Matthew's account rightly identifies this ailment as epilepsy. I do want to make a, a quick note here, though, that uh, it's the presence of the demonic in, in this case that causes the epilepsy. But it, that doesn't mean that in every case of epilepsy or, or other diseases, for that matter, uh, that those are the result of demon possession. I, I don't think that. I wouldn't want you to think that. It, it's just the case here. The boy is being tormented by a demon. Now, we've walked with Jesus through the book of Mark and uh, learned enough about him to know that casting out demons and doing mir- miraculous healings are, are routine procedures for him. He is the great physician. And indeed, this boy's illness is a problem here. But I don't think it's the primary problem. I think the the fundamental problem is faithlessness. No one to this point in the story but Jesus has faith. Not the scribes, not the crowds, not even the disciples. Jesus must have been especially disheartened by the disciples. Not because of their failure to heal the boy, but because of why they failed. A lack of faith. Whoa, 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 you might say. I cheated. I I went down to to verse 28 and 29. They say the disciples failed not because of a lack of faith, but that because this particular demon could not be cast out by anything but prayer. Yes, I, I agree. You're right. That's certainly what Mark has said. But I think we can better understand Mark's meaning here if we also couple it with Matthew's account. Let's read verses 28 and 29 here, and then we'll we'll flip over and read what Matthew says. If you do want to flip over, it's in Matthew 17, down there in verses 19 and 20. Matthew 17, 19 and 20. First, Mark's account. Afterward, that's after Jesus has healed this boy, when Jesus was alone in the house with his disciples, they asked him, Why couldn't we cast out the demon? And Jesus replied, This kind can only be cast out by prayer. Now now let's look at Matthew's account. The disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast out the evil spirit? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there. And it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. Are Matthew and Mark at odds with one another here? Are they contradicting one another? Not at all. Let's, let's deal with Matthew's account, and then we'll, we'll see how Mark's account helps us to, they help us understand both accounts, like they work together. They, har- they, they sing in harmony with one another, if you will. Jesus tells the disciples they couldn't cast out the demon in Matthew's account because of their little faith. Then he proceeds to give them a solution for their problem. Little faith. You see, the solution is not more faith. The solution for the problem of little faith is little faith. Faith that is like a grain of mustard seed. A mustard seed is really, really small. So what Jesus is saying here is kind of hard to understand. How can little faith be both the problem and the solution? 
I would submit to you that it's because the object of the faith is what empowers it. You see, the disciples have faith, and it is indeed a small faith, but it's faith in themselves rather than in God. It's not the amount of faith that matters, but the object of faith. It's as if you fell off of a cliff, and in your desperation, you reached out to grab onto a branch, just a tiny little thing sticking out from the side. You didn't have much faith. If you had time to think about it, you might not have even reached out because, hey, it's not going to hold you. It's just going to break. But in that moment, you quickly, in your desperation, reach out and you grab the branch and it holds you up. Even though your faith was mustard seed size. You see, it's not the amount of faith that saves, but the object of faith. The branch's ability to hold your weight is what matters not the amount of your faith in the branch. It's not the amount of faith that matters, but the object of faith. Ultimately, your faith is what you rely on. The disciples' little faith is powerless faith because it is misplaced faith, because it is prayerless faith. They've been relying on their own abilities to cast out the demon. That's why they failed. What Matthew calls mustard seed faith is explained by Mark as prayer. In other words, mustard seed faith is faith that prays. Let me me say it differently. Faith in Jesus Christ expresses itself through prayer. Why couldn't the disciples cast out the demon? Because prayerlessness is powerlessness, bordering on faithlessness. Their prayerlessness evidences their lack of faith in Jesus and demonstrates their trust and reliance in their own ability. It's worthy to note, any time in the Gospels that we see the disciples apart from Jesus, like things go badly and really quick. It doesn't take long. I mean, Jesus, Peter, James, and John went up the mountain to pray. They haven't been gone that long. But the nine remaining disciples have found trouble. And they're already prayerless and prideful. I mean, foolishly, the nine think that they can cast out the demonic on their own. Maybe they think that they can do this because Jesus gave them the power to cast out demons back in chapter 6, verses 7 through 13. Remember, he sent them out two by two, and they did all kinds of miraculous things. So maybe they think that power comes from themselves now, as they depend on themselves. I mean, these disciples are so dumb. How could they forget their need for Jesus' presence? How could they forget their need for his empowering so quickly? How could they be prideful enough to think they didn't need to ask God for help? I mean, who are these guys? Who are they to think they could do anything without God? I mean, we would never be so stupid as to do anything without prayer. We would never take a job without praying. We would never make any big life decision without praying by ourselves, with our families, and with the church. We would never make a purchase without praying about our financial stewardship. I mean, we would never move without praying. We would never minister and serve in the work of the church without Jesus and without prayer. 
in case my sarcasm is lost on you, let me be plain. We are the disciples. We're just like them. We quickly forget the presence of God and continually rely on ourselves rather than being continually in prayer. It's for good reason, Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Pray without ceasing. We need prayer for everything, all the time. We need mustard seed faith. Faith that prays. Faith that has Jesus as its object. Let me ask you, what don't you need prayer for? I think the application here is simple. Pray. Pray about everything. Pray through our membership list, as has been recommended by me and now Susan. Pray for the return of Jesus. Pray for your families. Pray for our country. Pray about your grocery list. Pray. Make it part of your daily rhythm. Pray at meals. Pray at the top of the hour. Pray at the bottom of the hour. Pray every time you check your phone. For those of you that have smartphones. Pray every time you answer the phone. For those of you that aren't in the cell phone world. Pray before anything you do that is important. It's as simple as as pausing for a few seconds to ask God's help and acknowledge your complete dependence on Him. It's not hard. Pray. Let me give you the most important advice you can ever get about prayer right now. So you get ready. Are you ready? You can maybe write it down. The most important advice you can ever get on prayer begin. Begin. The problem of faithlessness is ultimately solved by prayer. It's not until you realize how helpless you truly are that you will pray well. You will not pray well until you are poor in spirit. You will not pray well as long as you are trusting in your own ability. Jesus helps the helpless. So ask for help. Pray. Christian, I want to exhort you here to don't ever forget your desperate need for Jesus. I think it's high time that as the church we stop treating Jesus and prayer like religious garnish to be placed on the side of our lives. Prayer is not garnish. Jesus is not garnish. He's the bread of life. Christian, remember your brokenness and that only God fixes the broken. That it's only by His grace that good things happen to bad people like us. Rejoice in the fact that every day, that right now, Jesus is shaping you. He's helping you to become and practice what He's declared you to be in truth. And what He has declared you to be when you come to faith in Him and are united to Him is just like Him. He's declared you to be holy and holy like Him. He's making you more and more into His image every day as you submit to the power of His Holy Spirit. Remember that. Rejoice in it. Pray. While the boy's demon possession isn't the primary problem, 
it's still a problem. And Jesus begins to address it as he listens to a father's plea in verse 20. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And the father replied, from childhood. It's often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. Let me point out here. Demons are real beings, not simply mythological creatures. Jesus clearly believes in the demonic, and so should we. We can define demons as evil angels who sinned against God and who now continually work evil in the world. As we've said before, Satan, demons, and the structures of evil seek to destroy all that is good. They come to lie, kill, and destroy. Satan and demons make use of lies, murders, deceptions, and every other type of disobedience in an attempt to cause the people of God to turn away from him. Friends, there is a real enemy out there. We have a real enemy. The unseen metaphysical hosts of the enemy occupy the same world as us and seek to destroy us. Satan and demons seek to destroy you by destroying your faith. By causing you to have little faith, prayerless faith, powerless faith, bordering on faithlessness. Sometimes the the evil assault comes explicitly in suffering as we become ill with disease. Other times it masks itself underneath of blessing. An unexpected promotion that brings much higher salary that causes us to stop asking for our daily bread because we know it's coming. Evil is crafty. We must not allow the naturalistic worldview of contemporary society to blind us to the reality of our enemy. The scripture is true. As a result, we must take seriously its portrayal of intense demonic involvement in our human society. must admit, I've been guilty of this secular thinking myself. Are you guilty of secular thinking too? Do you dismiss the true reality revealed in Scripture in favor of the fabricated virtual reality constructed by a postmodern, materialistic, relativistic culture that actually can't even decide what's true for itself? Have you allowed your thinking to be so indoctrinated by the world that you reject the clear teaching of the Bible? Is your mind washed in the water of the Word? Or have you been brainwashed by the sludge of secularism? We must take seriously the Word of God. We must take seriously Paul's charge in Ephesians 6, where he writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. 
For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Who do we wrestle against? But against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. How can we sit around in our pajamas when Paul is telling us to dress for battle? How can we pretend to be at peace when Paul is telling us it is wartime? He, he continues on down after outlining the, the um, outfit, if you will, the military armor of God. And in verse 18, he says, after you put all this on, he says, praying at all times in the Holy Spirit with all prayer and supplication. That's how he's pointing us to make war. He says, make war on the enemy. Dress for battle. Pray. It is your weapon. So how can we pretend like we are at peace when Paul says we are at war? I'll tell you how. Little faith. Prayerless faith. We're comfortable with powerless faith because we are comfortable with our prayerlessness. We have allowed ourselves to become so content with sin and worldliness that the enemy has rocked us to sleep in her arms. All the while convincing us that she doesn't even exist. Friends, Satan and demons exist. They're active. Let us make war on the enemy. Let us wield the weapon of prayer. I'll never forget John Piper preached a sermon on this text out of Ephesians uh, a long time ago. And one of his points was, he, he said, I'm tired of Christians asking why they don't feel the presence of God. Why they're not experiencing the power of God. And he puts it like this. He says, uh, all these Christians walking around today, and he, he's really super intense. He says, murmur, murmur, murmur. Why am I not as good as I should be? Murmur, murmur, murmur. It's because you haven't made war. He says, make war. We need to make war on the enemy. We need to wield the weapon of prayer and stop murmuring. Notice too that when the demon sees Jesus in verse 20, it immediately attacks the boy. You see, the demon knows the power of the man of prayer. It knows the authority of the Son of God. And it seeks to cause as much destruction as possible before it's forced to leave. And Jesus asks his father, how long has this been happening to him? The father replies, from childhood. It's often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. If? The pain experienced by both the father and son is very real. Very significant. I empathize with the father here. I'm sure that he has tried everything to make his boy well, yet it's not worked. He even brought him to the disciples looking for a miracle, but the disciples could not exercise the demon. But this father has not given up hope. He's a parent. He asks Jesus to have compassion and heal his son if he can. 
And I don't know if Jesus' reply here is incredulous or compassionate, but this is what he says. He says, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Jesus is saying to this father what he says to the disciples in private later. Down there in verse 29. This kind only comes out by prayer. He's telling this father what he tells the disciples in Matthew 17, 20. If you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. All things are possible for the one who believes. Jesus calls this father to the type of faith the nine disciples have failed to have. He challenges him to have mustard seed faith, a faith that acknowledges its helplessness, a faith that prays. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help help my unbelief. The father is our best example in this story. He's the only figure that acknowledges his weakness, admitting that he does not have what it takes to handle the suffering and evil that he faces. He says, I'm not faithful. I'm riddled with doubts. I cannot muster the strength necessary to meet my moral and spiritual challenges. Jesus, help me. And Jesus says, bingo. You've got it. That's saving faith. Faith in Jesus instead of oneself. Faith that prays, admitting its weakness and asking for God's strength. That's mustard seed faith. This mustard seed faith Praise the seemingly impossible into the possible. Jesus will heal the father's son, even though the father is full of doubts. He's good. This is, this is good news. Through Jesus, we don't need perfect righteousness, just repentant helplessness in order to access the presence of God. It's true. I mean, if you haven't learned it, by experience, you're probably lying to yourself. But we're, we're never going to be perfect. Not until Jesus makes us perfect at the end of time. You're never going to be able to clean yourself up enough to be in fellowship with God. And so as long as you try to earn his favor, you never will. It's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners. It's only when you admit that you're helpless and in need of Jesus, the great physician, that you'll receive Jesus' help, God's favor, and enjoy his fellowship. Non-Christian, you can receive God's favor and enjoy his fellowship if you turn from your sin towards God and yield your life to his lordship. You can have abundant life by admitting your helplessness And asking Jesus to help you by making that peace for you. Stop relying on yourself. Place your faith in Jesus. Christian, don't get over the gospel. Don't ever get over this good news. The Christian life is admitting helplessness daily, moment by moment. It's continually believing in and relying on 
Jesus. I love First uh, John four sixteen. It says, for those of us that are in Jesus Christ, he's talking about Christians here, he says, so we have come to know and to believe or rely on the love that God has for us. Hmm. We rely on the love that God has for us. We do so by prayer. Never do we outgrow the gospel. Never. Every other hope in our human society is based explicitly or implicitly on how deserving we are, how good we are. Only the Christian gospel is based clearly, boldly, and persistently on how loving God is to the undeserving, undeserving sinners like us. His grace is why good things happen to bad people. Jesus helps the helpless. Ask for help. Pray. After hearing the Father's plea, it becomes evident that Jesus is about to heal this boy. And we will learn once more that he brings life from death as we witness a son's resurrection. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse. So that most of them said, He is dead. It appears that Jesus has killed this boy at first blush. Sometimes things get worse or seem worse before they get better. Jesus here performs a spiritual chemotherapy, if you will. And the boy finds himself dead. I think this is a, is a, a picture of much of our Christian lives. We don't have demons in us. But I'm sure that your flesh longs for sin in the same way that demons direct you to it. There are a great many times that obedience to Jesus will feel like dying. And it should. After all, following Jesus means dying to yourself so that you might live with Christ. It requires putting to death all that is earthly in you. With every death of every earthly thing, your flesh will scream and thrash and make you become rigid like a corpse. So it may seem. But take heart. Jesus heals the hurting. He brings life from death. He is the one that has said, whoever will save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will Save it. Jesus casting out of the demon leaves this boy lifeless, like a corpse. In fact, the words of the people, he is dead. Recall the little girl from back in chapter 5. Do you remember her? Jairus' daughter? Jairus had asked Jesus to heal his daughter, and when Jesus got to the house after uh, healing a sick woman along the way, mourners had already arrived. And she had been declared dead. But Jesus went to her anyway saying, she's not dead, but sleeping. 
Going into the room, he took her hand and spoke tenderly to her. Honey, get up. And the girl got up. Now watch what Jesus does here. They said of the boy, he is dead. And Jesus said he's merely sleeping. Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. Jesus takes the boy by the hand and the text says, literally in the Greek, raised him and he was resurrected. This boy gives us a picture and a preview. He gives us a picture of our lives apart from Jesus. Apart from Jesus, we are all dead in our sins. We all deserve the full wrath of God. All of us have fallen short of God's holy perfection and justice requires that God punish our transgression. Thankfully, the boy also gives us a preview of Jesus' death and resurrection. Remember, the disciples have just asked what it means to be raised from the dead back in verse 10. See, in the raising and restoring of the boy, Jesus provides his first object lesson on the meaning of his own death and resurrection. He's even going to elaborate down in verses 30 through 32, chapter 9. So they went on from there, passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. He's told them this a couple times now. They still didn't understand saying, and they were afraid to ask him. What Jesus is saying to his disciples is that as the boy was seized and thrown down and cast into fire and water, he too would be. Jesus would be seized by men. He would be thrown down and assaulted by the demonic. Jesus would walk through the waters of man's saliva. Jesus would cast himself under the fiery righteousness of God's holy judgment. Jesus would cry out, convulse, die, and be a corpse on a cross, and a corpse buried in a tomb. And just as Jesus took the hand of the boy and raised him, he would take hold of the Father's mighty right hand and raise himself from the grave by the power of the Holy Spirit. On the cross, Jesus makes full atonement for our sins. He pays our debts and credits us with his righteousness. In his resurrection, he proves his victory over death. He proves Mark's thesis that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. Because Jesus lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died, and rose to life, heralding the beginning of the new creation, those that have faith in Him can be made new. When you admit your helplessness and you come to Jesus, you become united to Christ so that the worst-case scenario of your life is already true, crucified with Christ. And the best-case scenario is already true, Raised to life with Christ. You are one with Christ. All things are yours because you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Be made new. Friends, Jesus helps the helpless. So ask for help. Pray. I, as I was preparing, I listen, listen to some old hymns sometimes. I enjoy congregational singing. 
And I thought uh, this, this one uh, captured uh, the sentiment here. It reads like this. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. Come ye thirsty, come and welcome God's free bounty, glorify true belief and true repentance, every grace that brings you nigh. Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. And the refrain, the glorious refrain, I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in His arms, in the arms of my dear Savior. Oh, there are 10,000 charms. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in His arms, in the arms of my dear Savior. Oh, there are 10,000 charms. There is satisfaction there. There is peace there. There is glory there. Arise, sinners. Come to Jesus. Let Him help you. Let Him heal you. Let Him hold you in His sweet embrace. Admit your helplessness. Cry out to Him. I believe. Help my unbelief. And enjoy fellowship with God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your continued faithfulness. We thank you that you save us not by the amount of our faith. Lord knows, you know, we would never be able to conjure up enough of it. We're glad that even the smallest faith that is placed in you is saving faith. We thank you that you are mighty to save and that you've called us to experience you in a powerful way through prayer. Father, help us to be in your presence continually through prayer and through meditation on your word, through coming together with your people. Father, help us to experience all that you have for us. Give us mustard seed faith. Help us to pray the impossible into the possible. Build your church. Build us up so that we might become more like you in every way and that all nations might see your glory and give you the worship that you alone are worthy of. We thank you for your goodness this morning. We thank you for the cross. We pray this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.